Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. As usual, you're with Mike. And with Ian. As we reread our favorite novels, the Patrick O'Brien Aubrey Matron canon. Ian, you know the drill. Bring us up to date. Tell us where we're going. With pleasure, sir. So last time in Chapter 9, Jack had been worried about whether Lord Barmouth, the new commander on the scene, would send another ship after the uh, the Algerine galley and not the surprise. He had tried to arrive in Gibraltar just before the time that the galley was due to sail, but he had met the Admiral and his fleet on the way in. Stephen, meanwhile, had discovered that the local Whitehall political advisor, a man by the name of Arden, was backing Jack, which was a, a plus point. Lady Keith, our old friend, had taken in the Irish children, Mona and Kevin, and Dr. Jacob had received late-breaking intelligence about the galley's plans to transit the Strait of Gibraltar. This time, Jack and the surprise do get to go after the galley, but the capture doesn't go as planned. To be honest, neither does much else. There's a long chase, yet another new day, another death, and another potential complication for Jack's career. <sighs> so, Mike, final chapter of the book here. Let's uh, let's see how it starts off. Well, we open the scene, as you say, with Jack and his officers surveying and sounding the strait in the ringle. So, Jack, kind of let's get advanced intelligence on this ground we're going to be running tonight here. And later, Jack tells Stephen that he's wondering a little bit that Jacob's intelligence, which seems so whole and so perfect, might it be just a little too good to be true? And Stephen says that Jacob and Arden, the new political advisor sent out by Whitehall that we just mentioned, are the only two intelligence men for whom he would lay his head on the block. Now, hearing that, Jack is convinced, calls for Bonden to ready the barge so he can go see Lord Barmouth, get that liberty to sail based on the most recent intelligence. Right. And... A number of things have changed in this scene compared to what we remember of uh, matters relating to the Admiral in the last chapter. The Commander-in-Chief is looking 10 years younger. He welcomes Jack with a cordiality that he'd never known before. And Jack is forced to recollect that this guy, Barmouth, has a reputation for being a temperamental man, moving from one extreme of mood to the other. But even given that knowledge, he's quite surprised. And Barmouth asks how happy Jack is with the intelligence. And he kind of goes back to this a couple of times. He says, are you sure of your intelligence? Are you sure of your man? And Jack says, I'll stake my reputation on it. Dr. Maturin will stake his reputation, his life on it as well. Mike, it's a little bit chilling that in this book filled with death, Jack finds it necessary to say, I'll stake my life and my friend's life on it. But, but anyhow, that seems to go okay with Barmouth. And he says, well, in that case, you should certainly go. And up to this point, it's been all military and business and guys in the room. But that's not how this part of the story is going to continue, is it? No, no. Barmouth completely changes the subject, says his wife came in this afternoon on a heavy frigate that was damaged in the recent storm, but she's a great sailor. And he was surprised to learn from her and Lady Keith that Jack was, in his words, a sort of cousin, a childhood friend of his wife. He said the two women had followed all of Jack's naval career, and whenever they got a detail wrong, Lord Keith set them right. So I think Barmer is saying that Keith knows him, his wife knows him, Queenie knows him, and the four of them said they all wanted Jack and Dr. Matron to come dine aboard the flag here tomorrow. And of course, he realizes that with this mission, he's not going to be able to do that. And Jack says that he and Dr. Matron would be delighted to do so when they return, and Barmouth calls for the old, old, very old brandy and drinks with Jack to the surprise of success. Like you said, Ian, a real turnaround in this kind of relationship between Barmouth and Jack. Jack, who's thinking, this guy doesn't like me, he's never liked me. Right. Now, boy, it's all smiles and roses here. And I had to read over this next couple of paragraphs a couple of times to realize the nature of this handbrake turn that O'Brien's taken us on. Jack drops this name back into the conversation of Admiral Horton. He said, I'd never served under Admiral Horton, never heard of his marriage or death. And I had to flick all the way through the pages back into the previous chapter and go, Horton, Horton. Oh, yes. Horton is the person who died 
whose widow is now married to Barmouth. And Jack is kind of going, sorry, your wife, his widow, who all are we talking about here without without being indelicate, I guess. And, and Barmouth says that Admiral Horton had been married to Isabel Carrington. And that's the name that we needed. Now the penny drops for Jack. He remembers Queenie and Isabel in his young days as a child. Uh, he remembers the fondness, perhaps even you might say more than fondness that he had for Isabel and thanks the Admiral then for permission to sail. And back aboard the surprise, Jack says, okay, I, I need to know which of our boats is the fastest and the most seaworthy because he's thinking about stringing out a patrol line to cruise along the Straits of Gibraltar when he believes that this galley is going to be at sea. Chip says it's the blue cutter. That's the fastest and the most weatherly as long as Mr. Daniel, the young master's mate who's so good with numbers and navigation, as long as he's the one at the helm. So Jack tells Reed on the Ringle that we're going to be leaving soon. Put the women ashore, he says, and I'll speak to you again as soon as we're clear of the mole. He's taking care here to make sure that Reed and Ringle, between them, don't get any advanced knowledge of what's going to be going on here until they're all well away from shore and well away from possible intelligence leaks. So, Mike, the game is afoot, right? The game is definitely afoot, and it's sounding so good. Their ships leave very quietly in the night after the evening gun. Jack stops the hoisting of the top light, and he said, nope, nope, we're going to have just one stern lantern instead. And now all the surprises know the game's afoot. It's like, uh-oh. Uh oh, we're running dark. We're slipping away here. You know, they're yeah. winking at each other with this this knowing looks here. And then Jack calls Reed and his officers to the quarter deck to tell them exactly what's afoot. And he reminds them that up until now, all they knew about their mission was the Adriatic shipyards. He says, We're also here to stop this gold filled galley headed to purchase mercenaries to help Napoleon win the day here. He tells them what they know of the galley's plan. And he says, now we're going to go out. I want you to ignore these two decoy Corsairs. I want the Ringle to go to Larbert and Daniel in the Blue Cutter to go to Starbert. Three cable lengths of beam of surprise. The first one to sight the galley is to send up a blue light if the enemy is to Starbert, a red if to port, and a white starburst if straight ahead. So got our marching orders. Yeah, we do. And it's detailed signaling plan as well. Of course, these are the Congreve rockets that we were talking about a little bit in the uh, previous chapter as well. And Mike, there's this very poetic description of the sky, but poetic, but a little bit of a head scratcher as well. There's no moon. That's what we, we and the Corsair galley had been waiting for, the dark of the moon. That means the stars are shining. No moon, says O'Brien in the text, but a most splendid wealth of stars. Orion in his glory, great Vega blazing on the larboard quarter and Deneb beyond, a little forward of the beam, both bears and the pole star, Arcturus and speaker on the starboard bow, and had the foresail not been in the way, Stephen would have seen Sirius, but he was shown Procyon. Then on the larboard bow, Capella, low down but still brilliant, and both Castor and Pollux. Castor is a glorious double, said Jack, pointing them out to Stephen. I must show him to you in my telescope when we're at home. Now, there's a little bit of astronomy to dig into here, and I'm not entirely sure that it gets us to a place that everybody can be happy with. First of all, we've, we've got some nice animal characterization here. Stephen would have seen the Sirius, the, the dog, the greater dog star, but because of the saw, because of the fossil he saw Procyon, the minor dog, fitting description of you know animals chasing a galley, dogs that chase raccoons. And Jack's talking about Castor of the of the Castor and Pollock twins, okay? Probably not entirely unrelated to the friendship between um, Stephen and Jack here. Castor's a glorious double. Procyon is, in fact, a double. Castor is six stars organized in three pairs. So there's lots of lovely astronomy detail to dig into here, and we've had that before. We had the uh, the horse and rider in the, uh, in the Great Bear earlier on. But... But I was trying to look at a sky map, trying to figure out when would we have been looking at this? This is allegedly, I think, in late May or early June. And Vega, Arcturus, Speaker, all make sense to me as summer stars. Orion and Gemini, the, the constellation where Castor and Pollux are, are winter constellations. I'm not sure that it's possible to be up in the dark of a summer's night and see absolutely every single one of these stars quite as O'Brien describes it. But never mind. 
never mind. It's poetry. I think that some of these stars are here to be uh, a convincing and authentic portrait of the sky. Some of the stars like Sirius and Procyon, like Castor and Pollux, are there poetically. And I guess that's perfectly okay, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. This, I, I think very much. You know, cause we, and we've heard a couple of these phrases, as you say, before, even as far back as, as post-captain. So it's a little, again, O'Brien going to his bag of research going, ah, oh, yeah, good time to paint that sky <laughs> a little bit here. Well, they're sailing southwest towards Tarifa, you know, where they know this galley is, is coming from. The wind is backing, and Jack's pleased that he's going to be windward of the galley when they reach her. And Jack's thinking, you know, if I can wait for the turn of the Atlantic tide, the galley is likely to have begun her run into the strait. And even though she's faster, able to sail a half point closer to the wind, if she's in the strait, surprise, we'll have the weather gauge so the galley cannot refuse an encounter. You know, we decide whether we fight or not. Well, with Tarifa not far off, Jack slows the ship, wanting again to get a little bit behind her if possible. And we start to get a little idea about what's going on, what the mood of the ship is here. Right. And the text here brings us into the action. There was a steadily mounting sense of crisis aboard. And for some time now, the quartermaster had sounded the bells only with his knuckles. Almost no talk or even whispering along the deck where the guns were already run out and the slow match smouldered in the tubs. It's funny, we've gone from many, many, many chapters and paragraphs of dancing around, if will we go, not yet, don't tell anybody, no leaks, we're not sure, have we got the right intelligence, to being right there in the real tense moment of this chase of this galley here. Daniel spots the galley inshore, sailing under the two Latines, sends up the blue light as per the signal's plan. The galley is not as far into the strait as Jack would have wished. He signals Ringle to pick up the blue cutter and then spreads all the canvas that the surprise will carry, chasing to haul as close to the wind as he can. The galley notices that she's been detected and notices that she's been detected by a little mini squadron here of three men of war, perhaps with more to the east still to come, abandons hope of the mission, strikes her sails and starts to row west, steering directly into the eye of the wind with the galley oars there to help her do that. Well, seeing the surprise with her great spread of sail, you know, she's now easy to spot. Murad Reyes chances a long shot with his larboard chaser, and he waits until he's just completely head and stern in line with the surprise. And the text reads, a long shot, but the combination of good aiming, excellent bore and powder, and the toss of the sea caused the 24-pound ball to strike the second gun of the surprise's starboard broadside, killing Bondin its captain, and young Hallam, the midshipman of the division. And we just, boom, yeah. there it is. Jack, it says, checks the gun captain's pointing. You know, they're looking at the low-lying galley, just kind of a blur up ahead now. He urges the highest elevation and, you know, orders fire. He's unsure if it the firing has any effect, but after a few more distant exchanges, the galley's pace seems to slacken. Maybe it's damaged oars, maybe just exhausted rowers. Jack orders a forward gun to fire, and in the flash, he sees the galley making sail. And we're kind of, you know, here's this one paragraph, very matter-of-fact, all to business. You know, this book that opened with such an impactful death is now, you know, we're here in the last chapter, and here we have another one, Bondin, you know, gone in the blink of an eye from a single shot, the only one that the galley lands wow. in this engagement. So, I mean, let's take a moment for Barrett Bondon. He's been in the canon even longer than Diana Villiers. Right. Um, he's been the servant and follower of Jack. And in on all of the twists and turns, really, really memorable moments. The exchange square, you know, off hats in the reverse of the medal, Desolation Island, uh, the prize fight, in the dripping pan in the on the estate where where Aubrey lives and just in this very very cool offhand way he's gone and mike and i think you and i both had the same instinct which was to say you know, who else has been thinking and writing about this and our former guest joshua corey writer himself who writes a fantastic series of essays on his blog page confessions of a rabbit fiend 
just lately has written his essay on the 100 days. And what he has to say about this is really, uh, really great thinking here. Barrett Bondon, Aubrey's coxswain, Stephen's pupil, Stephen had taught him to read, prize fighter, an able seaman, an all-round good man and true, is killed almost as an afterthought in the closing battle with a gold-laden Algerine galley. This is what Joshua has to say in his further commentary. The colourlessness of this passage seems more like the work of C.S. Forrester or some lesser writer incapable of lavishing the sort of characterization of which O'Brien is capable on a comparatively minor character such as Bondon. Mike, it's a, I, think, I think it's a really good point, this comparison with C.S. Forrester, with apologies for the spoiler if you're partway through reading C.S. Forrester, when William Bush, Hornblower's kind of right-hand man, uh, is killed. It's done in a very similarly deadpan way. And I, I love what Josh goes on to write about here. Perhaps it reads as a late-in-the-day manifestation of the no-one-is-safe ethic symbolized to many readers by the execution of Ned Stark in A Game of Thrones. Again, apologies if it's a spoiler, but I think I think we're all okay with that one. These novels have always been carried along by the paradoxical structure of the times they depict, in which a high civilization brimming with self-confidence, refined in its manners, and increasingly scientific in its understanding of the world, is, in all its individual members, shockingly mortal. As Stephen says, of his own medical skill, considerable though it might be for the time, I can purge you, bleed you, worm you at a pinch, set your leg or take it off. And that is very nearly all. And I'm, I'm, I'm super happy. <laughs> thank you to Josh and thank you for the permission to read it aloud in the episode. So many of us, I think, bump on this death of Bondon and feel frustration that it's just landed in there so matter-of-factly. It, it's great to think of you know ways in which this is kind of fitting and it's an important part of the way that O'Brien is is writing and, and, and how he writes. It doesn't leave us any happier, I don't think, but at least it gives us something to think about besides just you know, yelling into the void that he's taken Bondon from us as well as Diana. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree with you and Josh anymore, Ian. And it, I, I think unlike O'Brien, maybe it would be appropriate for us to take just a minute and think a little bit more about Barrett Bondin. And you, you mentioned that some people think that uh, Bondin is based on the character, perhaps, of Thomas Allen. Yeah, it's funny. I'm not sure that Thomas Allen was an absolute blueprint for Bondin the way that Cochrane was for Aubrey. But Thomas Allen was Nelson's personal servant. Uh, he wasn't a landsman. He was rated able-bodied in the uh, muster of the various ships that Nelson sailed on. And so he was a, a, a foot in the world of Killick and a foot in the world of Bondon. But he went home to be a family servant to the Nelson family uh, in between campaigns. He wasn't actually at Trafalgar, but he, he, he put himself out of his way to get aboard and to be serving with Nelson and also after Nelson's death in the Navy, a real committed Navy man. There's a really striking picture of uh, Thomas Allen in the Royal Museums at Greenwich, We'll put a link to the picture up on our socials. I, I, I look into his eyes and I think this looks much more like the Bondon that I have in my memory than uh, even the excellent Billy Boyd managed in the uh, in the movie there. <laughs> Too true. Too true. Good. Yeah. Well, you know, O'Brien continues. He says, the galley's dangerous chasers would not prevail in a broadside-to-broadside combat so she runs rather than risk the surprises, continued fire. Now, in the past, this galley's taken merchant ships much heavier than the surprise by boarding, but the speed and efficiency of surprises broadside convinces Murad Reyes to attempt to outsail the surprise. So I am glad that even though we're not getting another word about Bond in here, we are getting a call back to all of Jack's focus on gunnery and the fact that this might be the thing that's at least making a huge difference right here at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the next morning, as the sun rises over Africa, the surprises spot the galley two miles ahead, way to the west. And the two ships are running due west under cloudless skies for two days under the same sea. This is a really, really long chase. <laughs> at least as long as any other that I can remember in the canon. Some of the famous, famous kind of Cochrane chases back in Master and Commander, it's easily rivaling those. There's extreme tension 
he says, on the first day when, as the text reports, every man, woman and boy tried to urge the frigate on with clenched stomach muscles and extraordinary zeal in racing aloft or doing anything that might possibly increase the vessel's speed. And they can't sustain that for very long. So on the second day, the crew returns to their usual duties. They sometimes get to spraying the sails with water from the fire hoses to help them draw better. And Jack still, I think with his own belly muscles a bit clenched here, is working constantly to get every last ounce of thrust from the breeze. And in any case, says O'Brien, Jack was disinclined for any other occupation whatsoever. He was, of course, very thoroughly acquainted with death. But this time, he felt the loss of Bonden, an admiral sailor, and of young Hallam, son of an old shipmate, very deeply indeed. And, you know, back to the matter-of-fact way that we're handling the death. This is the last time in the book that we're going to hear Bonden's name. And, of course, knowing O'Brien's circumstances and the death of Mary, you can see why he wouldn't dwell. But I, I think if you're Team Bonden in any way, you're going to feel a little bit shortchanged by the very kind of passing reflection here. Anyhow, Jack's a serviceman. He accepts death as part of the life of the service. And as Joshua said in his paragraphs um, a few moments ago, those were the times that they lived in. So, Mike, we've had two days of the chase here. Jack's taken just a moment out there to to let his grief for Bond and come to the front of his mind. It's getting hotter and hotter, right? It is, it is. And I, I'll have to put one little footnote in here that I have to admit, I was glad that we came back to Bond for a minute. But I really held it against O'Brien that he would equate it to also the death of young Holland, yeah. the son of an old ship. Yeah. And I went, look, I never heard of Holland before. I've heard of Bonden for like forever. And you're going to put these two as, you know, this is a false yeah, equivalency in, in my own mind. Yes. So sorry, <laughs> but you're right. The days are becoming hotter. You know, O'Brien says uncommonly hotter. Stephen and Jacob are, are sitting, you know, kind of in their standard place. They're watching this thing. And Stephen says this chase might go on forever. And Jacob says, does look a little bit like eternity or, or a dream or something, but he doesn't think it'll last much longer. He says, in his experience, Corsairs like this one are full of men. You know, they're designed to take ships by boarding and that unless they plan to raid a distant coast, they don't carry very much in the way of provisions. Now, one like this, it's merely making a dash through the straits to stop right at Durazzo, isn't going to have many provisions at all. He says that in addition to all those borders, he's noticed that this galley has an exceptional number of rowers and that all of those people, rowers and boarders, need to be fed and watered. So we got Jacob, you know, Jacob's got that intelligent officer's mind using his experience saying, yeah, it looks that way, but I got a, I got a suspicion here. <laughs> Indeed. Well, there, under the blazing sun, we get this new form of sea warfare. O'Brien describes it like this. A slight strengthening of the breeze reached the frigate first and brought her within range of the galley's chasers. But since the vessels were not directly in line, the galley, in order to aim these guns, had to shift her helm, exposing some of her quarter. This danger increased with the wind, which brought Surprise's foremost guns trained right forward into play, with the further peril that she might put her helm hard over, showing the galley the whole of her flank and sending 168 pounds of round shot into the galley's relatively fragile timbers. And Mike, this is new for the chase. I don't think it's new at all to the Surprise and her crew and Jack Aubrey, but we're getting close enough that we can play this kind of cat and mouse game with the cannon fire. The gun captains stand and watch each other and the ship constantly looking for the slightest change so that they can counteract it. Jack keeps the forward guns constantly manned so nothing's given away by the gun crews moving towards them so that they there's, there's no telltale sign for the uh, Algerine crew to notice. He tells Master's mate Daniel that he's about to put the helm a lee and fire the bow chaser. And when he does, he wants Daniel to fire the forward battery as soon as they bear. Jack's shot skips through the galley's wake and goes through her after latin, the after triangular sail. The three foremost broadside guns send splinters flying from the stern gallery of the galley and the wind changes now and the gust that had brought the surprise forward now carries the Corsair out of range. 
And Mike, we were, we were hoping for a dramatic conclusion to the chase, but it's going to grind on and on, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's just this nip and tuck and the little wind changes and everything. And O'Brien writes, and so it went, burning day after burning day. And now even the moonlit night sky seemed to radiate heat. Day after day, with each doing all that human skill, ingenuity, craft, and malevolence could do to destroy the enemy, neither gaining any decisive advantage, though each wounded his enemy, wounded him, but far from mortally. And these are, I wanted to stop and have a little hurrah to say, yes, now that's an O'Brien yeah. sentence. That's, you know, we're, we're back here. I, I forgive you, Patrick. But on the first Wednesday in June, per the logbook, and O'Brien points out it has to be per the logbook because to everybody here, every day is exactly the same right. as the one before for a long time here. They note the wind fails them entirely. And so after this long, 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 horrible chase, the galley pulls ahead with her oars, and O'Brien writes, towards what might have been a cloud on the horizon if this pitiless sky would have suffered even a single cloud. And they're kind of stuck in this chase of, feels almost like purgatory. And the crew are starting to suffer the effects here. Stephen has three cases of sunstroke in his sick bay that day. Jack lowers a sail over the side, keeping well clear of sharks to divert the crew and hopefully cool a few people off. But the water's lukewarm. Meanwhile, Stephen takes Jacob into the main top with some help from Daniel and from three midshipmen. They're all still wet and naked from swimming. And they're trying to make sure the doctors don't fall on the climb. And the view that they get there is not a happy one. Jacob looks at the galley through the telescope and says, Oh God, in a tone of utter disgust. The Corsairs are throwing many of their manacled rowers overboard. Stephen hollers down to Captain Aubrey that the galley is sailing towards an island that they can see from the top. And, and, and Mike, before we get to hear what Jack's got to say, I'm, I'm noticing another reference to another very coldly, dispassionately described death. This time, multiple deaths, right? We've got the the horrible, inevitable, senseless deaths of the galley slaves. It's no less offensive for being viewed at a distance, I think. Yeah, yeah. This this constant drumbeat, you know, like you said, it sounds like purgatory. Yeah. It's the constant heat. It's nothing changes. And it's death, death to start, death all throughout, death continues here. Well, Jack climbs up in the top with Stephen and Jacob. And he looks at it and says, you know, I don't know this island. And Stephen thinks that he saw it once on an old Catalan map in Barcelona. It was called Crunk, hmm. meaning crab. And the breeze all of a sudden starts up again. Jack orders everybody sort of back out of the water, back aboard. And before the hellish sun dips down, the surprise, too, is at this island. And on the journey there, all of the crew members aboard have witnessed rowers being thrown overboard, and they hate and loathe right. those who did it. So intensifying here. And the island appears to be volcanic with a shallow lagoon, you know, formed during one of these eruptions here. And it's a, you know, you can get into that lagoon through a narrow channel, one that's too narrow, not deep enough for the surprise. And from the tops, they can kind of look over and they see the galley moored inside by a battered mole and some derelict old buildings. And, and they are thinking about this and they realize, you know, the only way we can reach her is by mortars, but we don't have any mortars here on the surprise. So she's safe tucked away in here. So, and Mike, we're almost at the end of this book. We've had all of these human, organizational, political, intellectual challenges. And finally, we thought we were about to get resolution here in this sea action. But what it turns into is a final seamanship challenge for Jack and the crew. They sail around the island. They're surveying and sounding. You know, this galley is, seems to be tucked away really securely behind this mole. Stephen is astonished that there's no vegetation, no sign of water, no sign of life, not even seabirds. And this raises a bit of a, at least a, a dark pink flag. I don't know about a red flag. You know, no vegetation, no life. I wonder what's going on here. Jack and Stephen then are rowed to a beach, to a strand, as it's called, to look around. Stephen looks into a cave, reports a total absence of life there. He thinks that it might be due to a poison gas that might also... Uh, explain the odor in the cave. And this is 
an island that's clearly had some kind of volcanic or underground activity lately. Master's mate Daniel reports that one of the hands on the boat was aboard the Centaur back in 1804 and says that the position here looks like it was when Captain Hood took the diamond rock. The seaman involved, who's a cragsman, who had been a cragsman in his youth, had helped to get the guns up the cliff. And Jack turns to this particular seaman and says, do you think you can get a line up the cliff? He thinks that he can, he says, as long as he has a well-tempered hand pick, a stout peg, and a block to keep sending him up another 25 fathoms, another 150 feet. So we're straight into Jack Aubrey, almost Cochrane-esque seamanship escapades here. But Mike, I think I know what we're going to find out here. This sounds like it's going to be a real reference to Hood and Diamond Rock and 1804. Is that right? It is. It is. And, and I love this. I was, I was doing a little research on it. And, you know, Philip K. Allen, who many of our listeners may know for his Alexander Clay series, you know, the Royal Navy in the late 18th century, also has a naval history blog. And there's a great article we can post on our socials called The Royal Navy's Strangest Ship, HMS Diamond Rock. And it turns out that this island, Diamond Rock, that they're saying that, that the island in the story looks a lot like is a mile off the coast of Martinique. So it was strategically positioned back then, 1803, 1804, to prevent f- contact between the French in Martinique, where their main naval base was, and St. Lucia, and to blockade this big main base in Martinique. The island was officially commissioned the HMS Diamond Rock hmm. by Commodore Sir Samuel Hood. So Hood that we talked about, he'd sailed to it aboard the Centaur under Captain Murray Maxwell. Uh, Maxwell had a lieutenant who was kind of an amateur climber and everything. So they actually scaled the side of this thing, much like they scaled you know, in the, in the story here. And reading about the description of this thing, uh, landing only one side that's, you know, you can't get to it in a heavy swell. Right. Quite this kind of sounds very much alike it. And sure enough, they uh, they kind of go up, they rig these huge cables between Hood's flagship, the Centaur, and they transport guns, equipment and supplies up there, eventually arming this island with 18 and 24 pounders. They station 120 sailors and wow. Marines and commission it as a Royal Navy vessel. <laughs> um, it's, it's got signal stations, you know, everything that you do with the ship, they do with this island here. They actually hold this position for 17 months. It becomes such a nuisance to the French that Napoleon sends out his admiral, Admiral Villeneuve, with a Franco-Spanish fleet of 16 ships to recapture the, uh, this diamond wow. rock. They held it from May 16th to the 3rd of June, 1805, uh, some of the shelling had had disrupted their cistern, their aqueducts, and everything. So, you know, they're out of ammunition and water. The French took sixty casualties. The British three. And it, he writes, since the island was technically a sloop of war, Lieutenant Maurice, this you know, this amateur mountaineer who had you know scaled it originally, had to stand trial for the loss of his quote unquote ship. He was quickly exonerated and was rewarded for his long resistance with promotion to command of a more mobile vessel, the HMS Savage. <laughs> That's such a great find. And again, just like always, you, you dig for a reference and there's a really, really fascinating backstory behind it as well. And the theme here seems to be endurance, right? The turning of Diamond Rock into a stone frigate, which is a very, very strange story, one of endurance. We're following a story of endurance here, I think, as Jack Aubrey and his crew have been chasing this galley, and now they're trying to figure out a way to get get at her while she's in this really secure, tucked-in anchorage. The mountaineer, in this case, isn't a lieutenant. He's this cragsman. Everyone is amazed to see him. He's a 12-stone man. That's 168 pounds, climbing up this almost perpendicular lower cliff. His cousin follows using the first line that the, the first seaman had made fast. Soon the two of them are cautiously looking down over the top, the entire lagoon open below them. And with this cat's cradle of rigging, which is the most elaborate that Jack's ever seen, they're pretty soon ready to take up a nine-pounder. So not quite the whole battery of 18 to 24-pounders, but maybe just one nine-pounder cannon is going to be enough to do the job. At night, when the water's too low for the galley to come out, the surprise comes round, drops two anchors, and sends hawsers ashore, And from that point, Jack's personal nine-pound chaser 
is taken up there, is fast to the messenger, headed up the cliffs onto the island. So, Mike, after all of these false starts and all of these heartbreaking pauses in the action, especially when you consider I was dealing with the death of Bondon, we might be finally about to see the turning of the tables in this action here. The suspense is too much. I, I think I need to go and grab a glass of something sustaining. But what, what, do you, what do you say to a little moment here? I'll be taking a short break and we'll be right back in a few minutes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. Like all the folks on the surprise, I, I hope you've gotten a, a good drink. I'm not sure what the Corsairs are doing <laughs> <laughs> for water there. Well, when the sun rises, all the gun and its munitions are in place. It's been a great deal of labor throughout the night. But seeing the galley there down below them against the mole, no one is in the least bit fatigued, O'Brien tells us. They are all ready. This is all worth it. Jack fires a practice shot into one of the dilapidated houses and it goes home perfectly. And then he says, you know, it looks like a scattering of ants down on the galley and the mole. You know, the Corsairs are running around looking up, realize their situation is hopeless. Bring their captain, Murad Reyes, forward. You know, they tie his hands, force him to his knees and call out to the summit above our sins on his head. And one Corsair cuts off Murad's head repeats the call, holding it up to the watchers on the cliff. And they're saying for a little water, they'll be their slaves for life, that those folks up there can have the galley. They can have all the gold just for, you know, the love of God. Please bring us some water. Wow. And and yet another death, uh, this time a rather spectacular and gruesome one. Yeah. But I, I don't know, m- maybe part of the message here is that life is cheap, but I, I hope that's not the case. Like, I hope that's not what's on, on O'Brien's mind here. Certainly... Life is transitory, if not actually cheap. Life is done, anyway, for the Corsair captain. Uh, Jack asks Dr. Jacob to reply on their behalf, but Jacob doesn't want to compromise his identity, saying that he thinks that maybe there's going to be another resource from below. And sure enough, the Corsair brings out a dozen almost naked, but clearly very powerful seamen scored with whiplashes, and these are British sailors. The seaman's leader calls out to say, we're British subjects taken from merchantmen and held for ransom. They'd be grateful, they say, for anything wet. And one of them hollers in sort of parenthesis here, we've been drinking piss for a week. And Jack shouts that down to them, telling them to take the Moors' weapons and tie their hands so that he, Jack, can then send in a boat full of fresh water and something to eat. And now, Mike, we get into the denouement that the surprise crew have been hoping for these many, many, many um, hours and days. They carry these boxes of gold, the wonderfully heavy boxes of gold, over and set it in the surprise's hold as ballast. Jack heads then for the nearest point in Africa to put all the Moorish prisoners ashore. Later on, Stephen and Jacob learn that the island had once been a prosperous fishing and corsair port until an eruption had destroyed the few water springs, the aqueducts and the cisterns, and had liberated this noxious vapour, these fumes that Stephen had suspected, which we hear were capable of killing a man after he'd breathed it for only 15 days. So, more potential death here, but narrowly averted by being able to get their business on this island done and get on the way with the gold bars in the hold, right? Right, right. Well, Harding comes in, he reports that the last chest of gold has been loaded and he breaks into this broad smile because he's already calculated that his portion of this 112 pound box, you know, what portion of this is going to represent his prize money from that box alone. And O'Brien writes, patriotism, promotion and prize money have been described as the three masts of the Royal Navy. And he goes on to say that even though prize money might not be the most important, it was certainly the one most discussed aboard the ship after they had dropped the prisoners off and were headed back for Gibraltar. And Jack, in an act of magnanimity, allows these former British slaves, these ransomers, to take the galley back and says if they do, they get to share in the prize money as able seamen. So a nice 
nice turn of events here. A little something, a little bit more positive. Yeah, here. A, a little something for people who've waited, uh, waited for their fate to be reversed. And maybe you know, there's something in this, the, the hand of right. fate finally, finally reaching out, helping out Jack and helping out the, uh, the slavers here. There's more. As we all find our ways back to Gibraltar, we see there's an enormous fire on top of the rock. Gibraltar is ablaze with bonfires. There are ships dressed all over, meaning that they've got all their bunting hanging out. There are bands playing as the surprise slips into her place in the harbour. The flag lieutenant greets Jack, gives him joy of his splendid prize, saying that Jack could not have timed it better. What's afoot? asks Jack. Here comes the news. Napoleon is beat, sir. There was a great battle at Waterloo in the Low Countries, and the Allies won. Then it is I that give you joy, sir, said Jack, shaking his hand. And Mike, there you have it. This is a book called The Hundred Days. So we've just we've just clicked from day 99 into day 100. That's the Battle of Waterloo. That's Napoleon done. That's the Sixth Coalition done. That's potentially all of warfare on the continent of Europe done for a generation. And there's, there's lots of meanings for this. There's meaning for us in terms of the story. There are meanings for the people there in Gibraltar. And there's probably a meaning for Jack Aubrey as a uh, hopefully non-yellowable uh, post-captain. But let's see. Jack asks for more details about this victory at Waterloo. And the lieutenant says, the commander-in-chief will have those details for you. He sent for them to come and eat with them. Lady Barmouth, meanwhile, has taken the coach to fetch the Keiths. So, Mike, we have potentially one of the happiest of all dinners in the offing here. Right, right. This is the one you know, long promise when they return. The commander-in-chief greets Jack and Stephen, gives them joy of their prize. Jack gives them all the details about the chase and their victory. And Barma says he wishes Jack could have taken the galley under a different day of Algiers. <sighs> I'm scratching my head a little bit. <laughs> Bartmouth explains this day, says the galley and everything in it belongs to him. And that if he's not compensated, you know, made whole, he's going to take it out of the British merchantmen. And Jack says, no, the galley fired first, which makes them a pirate and a fair prize. And Barmouth says, that's not what the day says. And Jack says, well, when is the word of a day who wasn't even there going to be taken over a sea officer who was? And Barmouth repeats, under any other day, and he tells him that the ministry has a special commission now in Algiers hoping to discuss the possibilities of a treaty since Ali Bey has always been so much in favor of England. And I'm thinking to myself, Ian, oh no, we saw this movie once right. before in the canon. You know, we take the ship, we win the gold. Nope, nope, turn the page and no, you don't get to keep it. Sorry, sorry, there's this technicality, oh. there's this thing. Ah, oh, I can't believe it. Heart sink moment. And maybe we can take a tiny, tiny scrap of comfort from the fact that this is the mellow, um, aging, more chill version of Jack Aubrey, and he is about, isn't about to go and you know wrench anybody's nose or call out any admirals yet. Let's see. Barmouth rather disingenuously says, so was it a large sum of money? And Jack says, I can't say how much, but the last chest weighed more than eight stone, 112 pounds. Obama says, well, if there are eight chests like that, then his flag officer's third would be about £5,000 sterling, which is a huge sum of money. Jack was tempted to say that, actually, I wasn't acting under your orders, but sensibly, he keeps his mouth shut. He, he still regards himself as being under Keith's orders. Again, the, the wiser, older Jack. Barmouth mutters under his breath something or other, but then recollects himself and says, well, it is far worse for you. Don't know how, he says. Don't know how you're going to explain it to your people without a bloody mutiny. And we're all thinking the same thing, right? Uh, with all the heat and the death and the galley slaves and the loss of bonding, and has this all been for naught when the Keiths arrive? And Mike, they, when, when the Keiths, especially Queenie, arrive on the scene, it's a bit like when Henage Dundas arrives on the scene, you know, we're going to get some some relief from what's been ailing us, right? Right, right. And all of a sudden, this desolate, awful scene changes again. Jack cries, Queenie. Dearest cousin Jack, says Isabel. And they both kiss him fondly. Wow. He says that he's delighted to see them both. And in such glorious looks, 
And they start swapping memories one right after another, going on and on and on, until Barmouth insists, as O'Brien writes, in no very urbane or even civil tone, that their guests should be seated. So, we, you know, we changed to happy. Now we're changing to, mm, you know, not so happy. Barmouth sits with Queenie on his right and Arden, his political advisor, on his left. Isabel sits at the head, the other end of the table, with Lord Keith on her right and Cousin Jack on her left. Uh-huh. Well, here's how the dinner goes from a conversational perspective to begin with. Arden the Politico gives them all some more details about this great series of battles in Belgium in the Low Countries with Napoleon. The conversation starts to slow down a bit. It's been an emotional day, and both of the admirals are feeling their age, which we know, at least in the case of Lord Keith, is considerable. Queenie and Stephen get to talking about the island, the one with the the poison gas. Queenie tries to get the commander-in-chief out of his ill humour. She fails, falls silent. So does Stephen, and we all know that Falling into silence is a fairly easy resort for young Mr. Stephen here. Jack and Isabel appear to be the only people enjoying the meal. They're about the same age, and now it gets interesting. The text says, When they were adolescents, there had been a certain degree of ambiguity about the nature of their friendship. Uh Ah, now that ambiguity was distinctly more evident. Isabel was in fine voice and very high spirits. And it was evident to Stephen on the other side of the table that they were holding hands under the cloth. She was, he reflected, something of a rake, a very pretty rake. And it was not improbable that her cross old husband was aware of it, for when her cousin had said something that moved her to an indecorous fit of laughter, Lord Barmouth straightened in his chair and called down the table. And my, This takes me all the way back to Master and Commander and Post Captain and Jack Aubrey canoodling with Molly Hart. Right. Good old Jack, right? Back to his old ways with his cousin, yeah. Right. Barmouth says that now Aubrey's got nothing to do with the Navy, he would be well advised to sail off to survey the horn and plumb the depths of Magellan. (laughs) I think Aubrey's got a different kind of horn in his mind at the moment, but never mind. He thinks, says Barmouth, that the... Inhabitants might appreciate it, and he goes on to say, I am sure the young ladies would welcome such a very amusing companion. This was said in such a tone that Isabel stood up at once. She and Queenie paced into the drawing room, leaving an abashed group of men standing there, all at a moral disadvantage. And whether this is just all jokes because of Jack and Isabel being a bit out, out of control here, or whether there's now the real new chance of ill will between yet another Admiral and Jack Aubrey, we don't really know. Everybody is a little bit put out here, right? Clearly, clearly he is. And, you know, it's interesting. O'Brien notes that the servants are very used to behavior like this on Barmouth's part. They take no notice. They just simply send the port around. Now, as the port's going around a couple times, another servant comes in and tells Stephen that Dr. Jacob would like to have a word with him. In the hall, Jacob tells Stephen that he's received word that Ali Bey has been strangled and a new day, Hassan is sending a delegation to congratulate the commander in chief and announce that the new day would like to introduce himself. And the text says, annul his predecessor's absurd claim on the captured treasure. But he should like the galley back as a symbol of his office, and he would be most grateful for an immediate loan of 250,000 pounds to consolidate his position in Algiers. <laughs> well, Stephen, I think is pretty glad to hear this, asked Jacob to please come in and tell this to the rest of the group right. here. Right. This is the news that we were, well, that certainly transforms everybody's fortunes here. Right. Huh. I don't know. I've read through these books many, many times now, and uh, this caught me out. I was thinking, oh, we're going to proceed to some kind of downbeat end where we've been done out the treasure again. But no, no, we're back in the prize money once again. Barmouth, thanks, Dr. Jacob, for this great news and for the early warning. He says he's happy to be able to receive the delegation in a suitable manner. He asks Lord Keith then, as the senior officer present, for his opinion. Lord Keith says, we should welcome this most heartily. Arden chimes in with his agreement. Stephen and Jack stay quiet, but 
Jack feels a spring of delight rising in his heart. And Mike, I, I'm super happy for Jack here, but I'm kind of sad in a way. The last thing that we heard of Jack's emotions was that he was mourning the loss of his you know, career-long companion, Barrett Bonden, and the counterpoint to that is that he's rich. <laughs> I think that's a bit sad, you know. No, no amount of treasure is worth Barrett right. Bonden. But right. there's a bit of a payoff for Jack, and I think we've got to be happy with that. Lord Keith says that since he was concerned with Captain Aubrey's orders in the first place, well done there, Lord Keith, for just sticking your your privileged ore back in there. Since he was concerned with these orders and knows the prize courts ways through and through, he'll take the case before them at once. He believes the ministry would consider the day's loan request a reasonable outlay. And of course, if it's a loan from the public treasury, it doesn't mean it's going to be netted out of the prize funds. I think the prize funds are going to be there. It's the government's responsibility to come up with the 250k to send to the new day. Barmouth nods, but his face has turned from sour to shining as his flag officer's third share, so recently despaired of, has returned as a solid, very beautiful fact. I'm like, I'm I'm not sure where we're left here. I don't think we ever get to surely know how Keith and Barmouth are going to fight quite over this very very considerable sum of money. But I'm I I think I'm still hoping that Keith is is on the ins here. And I haven't known Barmouth for very long. He hasn't done enough in my estimation to earn his uh, his chunk of change. No, I'm I'm with you, and and you know I'm 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 wondering as you are because quite early the next morning. Lord Keith surprises the swabbers aboard the surprise. He's there to collect yeah. the gold and have Gibraltar's three best goldsmiths reduce all these little chests of small ingots to you know tested ingots of a stated weight so that they can know exactly what they have here. And he wants this all done before the Algerine delegation arrives. Jacob attends the reception ceremonies for the New Day's delegation, but Jack stays behind to convince his men to have two-thirds of the prize money sent home. Good I enough. love this. And Jack's like, okay, got to take care of my crew, got to do this. Stephen also stays back. He's working on a long-coded report to Sir Joseph Blaine, and Jack is working on the stores for the ship. Stephen's working on the stores for the sick birth. So I guess they're, you know, they're 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 planning to get out of here pretty quickly. Right. Here. And and we feel the wrapping up of the storylines coming bit by bit here. Stephen's getting ready for home. Jack is getting himself and his ship and his crew ready for home. The ceremonies with the new delegation of the day go very well. The Keiths come down to say goodbye. They bring Mona and Kevin with them, the Irish children. Jack and Harding are very sorry, however, that they've been unable to keep all of the people sober. But it's not too bad. Queenie's seen a few drunken sailors in her time. And with all of these nice loose ends being tied up, Jack gets a moment of happiness when the surprise finally glides free of the mole. And uh, we get a little final moment here at the end of the chapter and at the end of the book. God bless, called Queenie, and liberate Chile and come home as soon as ever you can, called her husband, while the children screeched out very shrill, fluttering handkerchiefs. And at the very end of the mole... When the frigate turned westward along the strait with a following breeze, stood an elegant young woman with a maidservant, and she too, waving, waving, waving. The end of the hundred days. Mm. Wow. A fascinating wow. book, Mike. Not, not an easy one, I think, to figure out what it's for and how we feel about it because of all the different things that are happening in the the circumstances of the way the story is told, these two really, really unexpected and, uh, uh, and, and shocking deaths and a very, very ambiguous ending as well. What, what's on your mind as we get to the end of the book here? Well, I'm, I'm like you, Ian, a little bit of whiplash, I think. This thing has been just stunning, as you say. All these turns of fortune at the end. Will they go after the galley? Will they not? Will they take her? Will they lose her? Do they have the gold? Do they not have the gold? And we've got 
Stephen all the way through dealing with the death of Diana. Now we got Jack dealing with the death of Bondin. And, and actually, you know, as I reflect, thinking about our thoughts on this book, it's us dealing with all these deaths throughout the book, this constant you know, refrain of deaths. And I was thinking back to Sue telling us about how much Diana's death affected Patrick right. Hall when he first read yeah. the book, you know, to prepare to narrate it. And I thought, yeah, same thing. This is, this is a real gut punch for me, this, this whole thing, I think. Yeah. And the, we've talked many, many times about the juxtaposition between this gut punch and the gut punch that O'Brien himself had encountered with the death of Mary in between the two books. Let's just think about Jack's arc for a minute. He's potentially returning to the Navy in glory. He's in prize funds once again. Maybe that equates to him having a better chance of hoisting his flag. He's being sent off by a commanding officer who has every right to feel happy with the amount of prize money if he gets it. But he's not impressed with the relationship between Jack and his, the Admiral's wife that are bringing him so much joy when she first arrived. So that that famous older old jeopardy for Jack of... You know, can he can he control his libido, especially when he's concerned with other officers' wives? And it appears that Isabel, the Admiral's wife, having been formerly been a, f- a friend, a cousin of Jack's, was going to turn Barmouth's attitude around. But clearly, that's not the case. Jack is really no closer to hoisting his flag, as far as we can tell. He's he's no less at risk of being yellowed than he was right at the beginning of the Yellow Admiral, which is now two whole books ago. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's so true, Ian. We're kind of left like we've made this great progress in some ways. We've lost so many things in some ways. And we really don't know what's going to happen next. And it's not only kind of in the whole arc of this story going forward. You know, I was kind of going back thinking about Joshua Corey's reflections on this book. Yeah. And he says that this is happening all throughout the book. We had... Even after Diana's death, it was reported all these people talking about, you know, Stephen and Diana's incompatibility, her unsuitability to be a mother. And we're remembering, wait a minute, what happened is, as Joshua points out, at the conclusion of the Commodore, when Diana entreats Stephen into her bed and urges him never to return to sea. But he does go back and and we know how that right. turned out. So uh, it's, it's it's grinding on us a little bit. And I, I like what Josh goes on in his essay here. He says, with Diana gone, O'Brien begins maneuvering to set him up with a new paramour, Christine Wood, nay Heatherly, the widow of the governor of Sierra Leone. And like Stephen, she's a naturalist. Rumor has it that we got in this book that the governor had been impotent. So maybe, says Josh, O'Brien's setting the stage for a new relationship in which sexual and intellectual desires can match and amplify each other. Although I'm just stepping out of quoting Josh for a minute. Um, it doesn't make for a very interesting story when when, when the brain and, and the lust are perfectly happy and perfectly aligned. I think all, all human drama comes when those are taking you in different directions. <laughs> but anyhow, set that to one side. Joshua goes on and says, will there be time? Was it then entirely responsible for a writer in his mid-80s to throw over the romantic chessboard 19 novels in and start again. Well, I, I don't know whether it was responsible or not. I have a strong feeling that O'Brien wanted to, to kick a whole load of new ambiguity and uncertainty into the story. My favorite moment, my favorite bit of ambiguity in the closing moments of this book are about the woman, the young woman standing on the mole with the maidservant waving. Who is she? She's clearly not, I think, any specific character because the the women that I might be about to mention here, none of them I think you'd call young, but maybe it was Isabel waving for Jack. Maybe. She's clearly not young, but there you go. I wonder whether the woman waving, waving, waving on the end of the mole might somehow have been Christine waving for Stephen because she's kind of been indirectly in the background in the context here. Maybe she was in Gibraltar for some reason. And my uh, my kind of Patrick O'Brien romantic pathos-oriented heart says, maybe this was no literary character. Maybe the woman standing on the cob waving uh, was was Mary, Mary Tolstoy O'Brien. And maybe that's him waving a little farewell to her at the oh, end. I don't know. Um, if, if it is, it's really, really sad. Wow. Oh, 
Oh God, and you're right. You know, it's it's funny because as you were talking through that, I thought, and maybe it's Diana. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> maybe yes. it's Diana waving some little moment of magical realism. Yeah. It does, I, I think, bringing all this stuff up for us, it says what a rich thing this is. I can't remember well enough the French Lieutenant's Woman, yes. the book, but I remember some kind of, you know, this moment of ambiguity kind of thing here. Um, and it's just, I think this brings me to another point that Joshua made, and, and it's something that I reflect on a lot as I get way, way, way in in late in my life here, you know, what happens to your view of things, what happens to the certainty of the world, the certainty of yourself and all that stuff when you're this old. And and Josh, I thought made a great point about, you know, maybe what's going on here in the novels right now is due to O'Brien's age. Yeah. And I, I, not, you know, and state of Right. Life. And I think it's not just about some people have wrote about his maybe his powers were declining a little bit. Maybe he didn't quite have quite the vim for the for the writing process. But I think that's not what we're thinking about here. Like you and I talked right at the beginning of this canon a lot about perspective and the lack of perspective that Stephen and Jack both variously had about their own situations. But they both have that now. They have a new perspective, and I'm sure O'Brien is sharing with us a little bit his perspective of late life. And Josh Corey in his essay talks about late style. In, in artistic works, and I love the fact that we get to talk about Beethoven here because it's one of my favorites. Late style, says Josh, is a turn that happens towards the end of an artist's life. Whatever that life's duration, critics speak of the late style of Beethoven's final string quartets composed in his mid-50s. Beethoven died when he was 56. It is the enhanced consciousness of mortality that makes for late style. The consciousness, he says, leads to a deepening of contradictions, a certain indifference to questions of form that might once have preoccupied the artist, an increasing sense of apartness and exile and anachronism. And he's quoting there the work of, I think it's Edward Said, who was a Palestinian writer and literary critic and philosopher. Going on here, the grim accounts, says Josh, the grim accounts I've read of O'Brien's final years would seem to confirm such emotions. It's as if he can't bring himself to offer his heroes unequivocally happy endings in the face of his own. One can dream of 20 additional novels detailing Jack and Stephen's post-Royal Navy career, during which they fight for the independence of Chile, Brazil, and Peru. Stephen makes biological discoveries in South America with the help of a supposedly new naturalist wife until Jack finally dies as a lord and Stephen retires to Catalonia with his grandchildren. But closing words from Josh here, but O'Brien was 84 when The Hundred Days was published. Unless some other writer steps forward to carry on his work, this is a fantasy. And I wonder if it was a fantasy cherished in some form by the author himself. And that's a really, really great point. You know, what role did the writing of the books play in O'Brien's life and his energy and his zest for, for, for continuing to do things and create things? I remember your mention at the end of the last episode, Mike, about the, the country singer Toby Keith and, you know, do I have one last go in me? I'm not as good as I once was, but maybe I'm as good once as I ever was. And apart from O'Brien's writing chops that we've talked about, apart from his research and his energy, what something else must have been renewed in him to some extent, his curiosity about keeping this story spinning. I'm not sure that he's still driven at this point in his life towards the same end result as he was when he started. You know, three decades ago, he had the the whole adventures of the canon to write about. He had all of this research and knowledge and scholarship to explore. He had Mary by his side. He had a whole literary genre, a whole readership waiting to be turned turned on and turned on its head. And in, in the midst of all that, he had such a great change in fortune because he went from doing that in relative obscurity to a little bit of recognition to all of a sudden, again, here at the late stages, a million for every novel yeah. tours across the U.S. and everything, and then losing his Mary. So, yeah, it's just I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's funny. I think this whole idea of Josh talking about wanting to live in this fantasy, wanting to stay in this world, what might happen, I think there's a... a, a, a a minor existential crisis that we all face here. It's like, well, we know there's only one book left. 
and we don't want this to end. And then the question that always goes on, do we continue? Do we read 21 or not? Do we want to do that? Or we want to say, no, 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 we want to stop when we get here. And, And I'm glad, you know, today, right after we finish recording this, we're going to be talking to some of our Patreon supporters on a Zoom meeting to say, what about the lover's yeah. hole? What do we do? Yeah. <laughs> Here we are, one more book. What do we do after Blue in the Mizzen? Do we go on to 21? Do we do 21? What's it? Yeah, what's at the end of that? Well, I guess we have at least 10 weeks to go. We do. Because we know we still have Blue in the Mizzen to come down off the shelf. Ian, what do you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, with all my heart. doing all that human skill, ingenuity, craft and malev- sorry and, man- <laughs> and ma- craft and malevolence. Yeah, there you go, Sam.